From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We're recording on Zoom from various places in the U.S. As we have been the last few weeks, we will continue this as long as we bring in some interviews to build back out to our two. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, everybody. Good morning. How are you guys? Excellent. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. I believe everyone's still in the same place as we have been. You got it. This will be the last show from Central Texas. We're heading back to Pennsylvania this weekend. Shane Jensen there in City Center. Adi Weiner and Eric Bradlow on the main line. We are going to continue the way just talking a little bit about COVID-19. Um, to begin the show, and then rolling into sports and COVID-related sports as the world of sports begins slowly opening up. But we're still living in a pandemic. There are still new debates and data and studies coming out all the time. Curious what has caught your eye in the world of COVID-19 lately? Well, I did an analysis actually just before we got online, which I have yet to share with you. It's not really an analysis. It's just something that I've been complaining about for a long time, which is data quality. And it turned out it's somewhat stunning how different it is. So the Philadelphia people collecting data are doing an amazing job. Um, I actually know some of those people, but they've really done it a great with open data source and and active updating and they go back and they assign the deaths and the counts to the right dates and they're doing a really good job of producing a very high quality data set. But at the national and, and, and uh, state level, they, it's a mess. So, if you, so you think that you should get the same results ultimately from the same data, but that's not what's happening. So if you look at the, at the Pennsylvania website, the Philadelphia city website, looking at say death counts, which is always a good number because it's less controversial about what it means. Um, it really goes up and then it really goes down. But if you go to the, 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 uh, the state or the national databases that I'm looking at all over, it doesn't see that at all. It just sees a flattening out. Well, Adi, let it, me ask you a question as a, just as, since we're a radio show here and we're Moneyball, as a, um, how do you address the listeners on our show that would just say, you know, Adi, I deal with this every day in my life. I've got two different data sources. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone can say they're different. How do you know yours is the more accurate one? And, you know, how do you, when you say one's good and one's not as good, on what basis, forget just generally, how would one answer that? Well, one quick place to look is for spikes. Um, so death counts, people, unless there's some sort of strange behavior, like on Tuesdays, no one's allowed to die. Um, you shouldn't be seeing uh, spikes of 95 in one day and zero the next. That seems to be an accounting problem. There is, there is a buildup so, over weekends. I have sort of noticed uh, a, a, right. there's so, a weekly cycle to these things. But. Yes, right. So, so, and so on the Philadelphia actual government site that they're producing, they're going back and assigning the death to the de- the date it happened. So and they're so kind of retroactively smoothing yeah. it once it yeah. comes in. Well, it's okay. not smoothing. It's not a it's not a statistical well, thing. It's just an assignment. And they they actually say it on their website. We will go back and update as we allocate our death to the right spots. So it has a much smoother look. The numbers look Poisson, which means that the variation on a day-to-day basis doesn't look like it. It's, it's, it looks like natural day-to-day variation. You don't see these spikes of 100 followed by zeros or even negatives as they, you see some of that in, in some of the data sets. So a bad data set, one way to look for it are, are points that just are out of range or have, have, have uh, variation properties that aren't 
that don't follow a probability model that would make sense. So the Philadelphia one, and also know the people doing it. So I, I think they're doing a terrific job. It looks very clean. It looks like it should look, and and it shows what I think we'd expect to see, which is a which is a there was a big run up and now a, a big, fairly big drop. Let me just add something to what Adi said about um, one nice thing about this model for counts, which Adi described as Poisson model, is let's say the mean number of deaths per day is 100. The nice thing about the Poisson is that the mean and the variance are the same. So if the mean's 100, the variance is 100, which means the standard deviation, which is the square root of the variance, is 10. So that means, you know, if you go back to your, if you apply the Poisson model with kind of your basic theory of Gaussian normality and bell-shaped, um, if the mean is 100, you should see essentially plus or minus 30, 70 to 130 should capture 99% roughly or 99.7% of the data. And what Adi's describing is actually a neat way to check data quality because given you believe that there's an, a natural arrival process, which would lead to a Poisson, then if the data is of poor quality, you'll see deviations from this kind of average plus some variation. You got it. And you know what else is good about it is you can actually determine whether or not a drop is like statistically significant. I hate those terms <clears throat> because if you use their, your, your two standard deviation rule, if you got a drift of several days in a row that are two or three standard deviations lower than what you'd expect what you were getting in the past, you pretty much know you've seen a trend rather than just chance variation. And does, does kind of this good data and modeling you've done kind of suggest that uh, Pennsylvania does look kind of past its peak? Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, it, Just because if, if you look at, for example, some of these kind of projection systems like the UT one that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, the probability actually on us having been past the peak has actually been going down. So yes. you, look at, you look at the website now and it's like, you know, 70% chance of being past the peak. Of course, they're talking nationally, not in Pennsylvania, which they're, is an important they, distinction. But I, I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, they actually do have a Pennsylvania. Um, and and it's, it, it's, uh, it looks sort of similar. Philadelphia, there's a lot of heterogeneity. So actually, Pennsylvania as a whole is often is, is a big chunk of that is Philadelphia and its surrounding suburbs. But they don't, uh, UT doesn't break it down by, by city or county. County data is not the easiest to get, particularly accurate county data. But I just sent it around to you guys. Maybe we'll put it up on, on, uh, on the internet. And you can see that the, the two different ways of looking at the same data, one produces a flat and one has a clear up and down. And the one that is reliable is the one that's up and down. Well, I want to add one other feature, something I saw, this was just in a, in a broad publication, I think the New York Times, was how much heterogeneity is hidden in these aggregate curves. So, for example, if you look at Texas, this, people have been talking about with U.S. and New York City. So if you take New York City out of the U.S. data, apparently there is no, there is no peak yet. We just keep going up. Texas is markedly this way if you take Harris County out, for example. It's, it's almost monotonically increasing if you take the non-Harris County, which is Houston, part of Texas. And it just strikes me as this is an example where, you know, we talk about heterogeneity on the show. Sometimes it matters. Sometimes it doesn't matter. You might ask yourself, what determines whether heterogeneity matters and when we have to worry about it? Well, it matters a lot if, you, if, if there are policy implications. And there are policy implications here. We could be opening up not just states differently by state by state, but we could open up parts of states differently if we're sufficiently attending to heterogeneity. 
And it certainly looks like there is room for that, though we're not seeing much of that on the policy side. Yeah, I, 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 sorry to interrupt, but like a, a short a, a short answer to when heterogeneity can matter is when there's spa- when when that heterogeneity has a spatial component to it, and when policy also has a spatial con- you know right. spatial Perfect. heterogeneity both in policy and in the outcome, and that those two together are are, are, are obviously very important. Yep. Yeah, just a follow up to Adi's point, and, and Adi, thanks for sending these graphs along. Just so our listeners can know, one, as Adi said, with the, let's call it the bad data, looks like there's an upward trend. The other one looks flat. Clearly I think like, it's flat. Yeah, or at least yeah. certainly flat after the first ramp up period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other one's clearly an up and down. One of the topics I'm sure many of our listeners are asking about, and this is actually a problem I'm writing a research paper on. As a matter of fact, I presented it to the stat department about two months ago. How do you determine the level of granularity with which to, let's say, look at a histogram like this? Like you've plotted every single day and somebody might say, use the most granular data, but that could actually obfuscate, you know, hide some of the patterns. So how do you think about it? Should you do weekly? Should you do, I mean, because, you know, as, as you guys just talked about, if there's under and over reporting, Maybe not at the weekly level, there isn't. So how do you think, Adi, about presenting this data in a way that the, I'll call it the true trend can be inferred instead of somebody just overreacting to various spikes and stuff? Well, it's interesting because it, what this granularity is a classic statistical control theory problem. Like how do you aggregate? How do you build buckets? And if we build buckets that are two weeks in length or even one week in length, we'll get smoother, we'll be less sensitive to ups and downs but we'll also be slower at detecting trends. (laughs) That's what happens because you'll have to have a couple of them in a row. That means a couple of weeks in a row. And then you don't really see, you might take a long, much longer time to see it. So if you believe the data that I think is coming out of Philadelphia, which is accurate, I think it'll, it'll take the national or the state level two weeks to see what we're seeing now in Philadelphia because we're at the right granularity. So that's the trade-off. How do you take into account, even, even if it's in a graphical way, maybe, how would you take into account, Adi, the fact that, you know, let's imagine the state now makes a policy change, changing distancing and stuff like that. How would you take that into account? Um, like, for example, um, you see the up and down pattern. Um, maybe, there, maybe nothing has changed except maybe the distancing pattern looks up and down. And that's what's in some sense, quote, unquote, causing it. How, how maybe whether it's from a visual perspective or otherwise, how are you planning if you were going to do a forecast to take into account the change in distancing? Let's pretend you had the data. How would you use it? Well, I know the way people are doing it is essentially assuming a, a straight monotonic or almost linear relationship between distancing and cases. Um, and, then, and then from cases to deaths. I don't think, and I've made a big point of that, that that's not accurate because, and I can see it in my own life. Um, and actually, it's, it's actually weird on both ends. And maybe we should tackle, tackle the psychology of this on both sides. There's like the 40 and unders, and I'm, I see it in the 20s and 30s even, and even youngers, and, but not the younger, not the kids, because they can't do what they want on their own. But those in their 20s and 30s, they're out there. I mean, you see them in the parks, you see them going on trips. And then, and I also see on the, on the high side, interestingly enough, the senior citizens, and maybe it isn't irrational, they are also out. They're not out and about, um, but they tend to hang out with each other. And, and in ways that I think I, I have to take, looking at us, we're roughly, I don't know where Shane is. At. Shane is always a lot younger than, than, than all of us. <laughs> uh, but I feel like almost 40 or to 60 is the sweet spot for taking this the most serious, maybe 40 to 70. And that the oh, eldest folks, 
are, they're like, you know, I don't have that many years left. Am I giving up one of my four or five best springs to just sit around in, in a dark room? Um, and the younger ones are also having a harder, harder time. So that makes the social distancing and the mobility formulas, that kind of makes it hard because this is how that, in, because uh, how that infects cases and deaths is complicated because of the very diverse nature of the way this virus attacks people by age. So it's, it's definitely complicated, um, but can we learn something from even just simple models? And isn't that the natural place to start? So this is something some economists early on started looking at county level data and they had cell, they had mobile phone tracking data and they could they, they'd ask all kinds of questions. But at the heart of it is we don't need to know what the policy is. We can see what the behavior is. And they started baking that into their models. But of course, they're going to bake it in as Adi says, in kind of a simple way, maybe just a linear way, because what you need, no one has, nobody, this, this pandemic will give us the tools finally to map actual distance move to, to cases. But right now, nobody's got that. But, the, but my, my question, and really it's more of a point, and the guys have a question is, is it, don't we need to start somewhere? And aren't these simple models a good place to start? And people are finally now, like in the last week, you're starting to see some people running Nate Silver had a post on it. There's an economist out of that used to be at a Duke who, who has a great thread. He just looks at some mobility data and maps it on the cases. And there's enough variation over time and space that you get a little bit of a purchase on it. One thing it does show is that movement in April didn't look quite as bad. Meaning the, the, the impact on cases wasn't as bad in April as it was in March which suggests that people are being more careful. They might be moving the same miles, but they may be mm -hmm. using masks or keeping more distances. And so they are seeing some differences there, but broadly, let me give you the, the punchline from this, this fellow in particular, and I'll track the name down in a second. I, we retweeted it this morning, but the punchline from this fellow was that there was so much increase in movement already baked in that he expected across the, the whole country, which is, you know, absurdly general, something like a 0.2 to 0.25 increase in the in R, which is the rate at which reinfections are occurring, or the rate at which the infected population is growing versus declining. Everyone knows we want to be below one to, to start killing this thing. If it's above one, it's going to be expanding. And he said, that's a, a 0.2 to 0.25 increase is enough to kick us above one in many locations. And he's saying, this is the key bit. Because of the two-week lag, two, two-week-ish lag, that's already baked in. Given the increase in distance travel that we're observing in the phone tracking data, we've already baked in an increase in R, something like 0.2 to 0.25. Now, look, this is oversimple, well, over-general. Right. One, one oversimplification, presumably, is that you, you, you can't just apply that 0.2 to 0.25 national, you know, to kind of the national RO, R, R, right. Like, I mean, an argument, you know, I, I guess kind of the, not that they're making particularly scientific arguments for reopening, but a scientific argument for reopening is if the, if we're in a location that's not dense, like a rural kind of location, the RO is, is maybe low enough that like an increase of 0.2 or 0.25 is not going to get anywhere near one. That's right. And as that's long right. as we kind of keep the like cities, for example, you know, more, more uh, socially distant, then, then that's going to have the more major impact. That, that's correct. But let me give you one empirical observation. I looked at these data for Texas, the state of Texas. I'm using a vendor called Unicast. And you have county level data with cell phone tracking. And you can look at things like distance traveled. You can look at number of non-essential businesses visited. And I had a hypothesis that you would see West Texas 
coming back up to normal, much faster rate, higher level, and then cities being more conservative and, and being, you know, more social distancing. Instead, we see kind of an Austin versus the rest of the state. And the reason I'm bringing this up, Shane, you just said, well, maybe, you know, we can open up rural and keep cities buckled down. Dallas, Dallas is something like only off 20% versus its baseline on non-essential businesses visited. Dallas came back. If you, Dallas looks like, looks a lot more like West Texas than, does, than it does Austin. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic because of the number of cases in these urban areas. I have a statistical question for you guys, but it's really also a question about the substantive area of COVID here. One of the things we talk about in marketing all the time is, let's imagine you're going to build a model for something. And let's say, let's even say it's uh, sales. And you're going to include obviously things like price and marketing expenditure and all kinds of other stuff. But you're also going to include, let's say, uh, what's called a fixed effect or an intercept for every local region. And one of the things we do in marketing all the time is saying, look, if we really understand the process, these fixed effects for the different counties or, or locations shouldn't actually add that much variation because the other variables are explaining it. So my question to all of you is, we all believe age is a factor. We all believe that, um, and that could be even at a county level, the distribution of ages. We all believe that um, the degree of comorbidities might be a factor. Maybe socioeconomic status is a factor. What have you learned empirically? What set of factors do you think would have to go into X that in some sense, the fixed effects for each county would go away as being important? Or is there just irreducible variation that we'll just never be able to describe through these other variables? It's a great question. It's, it is the, exactly the right modeling question. I feel like at that level, I have to punt to epidemiologists. I'm quite happy to punt to epidemiologists. Or epidemiology to just acknowledge... like healthcare specialists. I would need to know a lot about the healthcare systems in those uh, at the no, county level, why, et cetera. But, but can, yeah. Shane, let me say why I asked the question. Because there's a reason I did because people have a mistaken belief. I think that, well, Florida is different than New York. No, if the X's in New York were the X's in Florida, Florida would get the same thing. New York gets, unless you believe that temperature is involved, unless Mm -hmm. you believe that humidity is involved. So people have this misnomer of what heterogeneity means here. And that's what I want to make sure we get out to our audience. So Mm -hmm. I actually been thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot um, because you see enormous differences. Florida has been totally defying the forecasts almost since the very beginning. And the question is, why? Is it something funny about Florida, maybe temperature? People point to that. Or is it something else? Like, for example, its age distribution is extraordinarily different from New York City. New York City is much more of a bell curve, I mean, or a flat curve about an age. And Florida is very old, very senior, particularly South Florida, and then very young elsewhere. And I think a lot of the mobility that you're seeing in Florida, the openness that you're seeing in Florida, is very concentrated among the young who are much less likely to find themselves in hospitals and die or even be tested at all. And that I have many, I can, I can, I can probably next, take the next 15 minutes to tell you all the relatives and, and get relatives and friends and relatives in Florida. This is where, you know, Jews go. Um, and they are absolutely locked down. So the seniors in Florida are, have taken extraordinary social measures. And the young people in Florida are taking exactly the opposite. So you look at mobility data and then and you have no idea what to it's, forecast out of it. it. It's still, I think, you'd need some pretty granular data to kind right. of to, to substantiate right. that because it still surprises me. I mean, so many of the deaths in like the like Northeast area have been in things like nursing homes and stuff <sighs> like that. Those, right? I mean, 
85 percent where eric and i live like like up uh, higher than two-thirds of the deaths in pennsylvania have been in nursing homes and of course florida has you know uh, an incredible nursing home sort of situation you know um and so what they protected them well right i so i i think the x's you would need in in kind of eric's framework would be what were they doing at these nursing homes in Mm -hmm. florida versus like pennsylvania and new york you know, I, I'm going to get this data that Adi's been using, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. There's a model that I explained three or four weeks ago. There's an oversimplistic, which I don't think will fit the data well model in marketing, called the BASS model, which is that the hazard rate, the probability of someone, let's say, getting the virus, or let's even say dying from the virus, is a function of F of T, which means the cumulative number of people that have actually had the disease, Okay. Um, it's too simplistic that so assumes everybody influences everybody else, all this other stuff. A recent model that has just been thought about in marketing is what's called the asymmetric influence model. And it reminds me of what Adi's describing in Florida. Let's imagine young people interact a lot with young people. Well, they're none of them. I mean, yeah. there's going to be no influence. The problem is when the young people interact with the old people or the old people who have it interact with the old people. And that's exactly what that you could think of the name asymmetric influence model. So, so, so Florida's key, key to success could be just greater segregation by age. Correct. Exactly. Like exactly. Yeah. That's super interesting. I want to add one other factor that's outside of what we usually do. And I've mentioned it once or twice over the last couple of weeks, but it has to be a huge, it has to be playing a huge role here and that's norms. So that a person's decision-making is a function of all these things we've been talking about. um, But it's also a function of what those around them are doing. And it may be because they have disutility from standing out from other people. It may be because their beliefs are affected by other people's beliefs or they infer something. There's kind of a cascade effect. Mostly this is outside the world of economics and psychology and stats, but there's a whole discipline dedicated to this kind of thing, sociologists. And it feels, it has from the beginning felt to me like just a a panoply of sociological effects. And those of us who don't study it, I think we're probably missing a big factor in these models. And that is what are we surrounded by? There's kind of a second order momentum effect of sorts. That, that, that probably explain a, a non-trivial part of what people are doing. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Kate, but I also, I, I, get, I do agree. I go back to Adi's point from the beginning. Um, there must be, and built, which built kind of on the thought I was trying to make, which was if these main effects of differences between counties, states, et cetera, are so large, it must mean that we're almost missing something in the model because they re- there's nothing inherently, unless you want to say, well, it's the mountains versus the rivers. Right, well, but you could put that into the model. And so if you're getting these differences that are not, because the virus don't care, you know, it, it's just a matter of the variables that you could measure. And I think that's a really important point. The last thing that I think is, is, is un, unaccounted for and yet, yet unmeasured, I think is ultimately very important, which is differences in medical care. And one of the things that I've learned from being around a bunch of colleagues whose expertise is just this, is that hospitals really vary. And the city ones are much better, particularly in things like heart uh, disease, and then the, then the rural, rural ones. We don't know whether this is true yet in terms of, say, survival from, from uh, coronavirus or COVID, COVID-19. But I can tell you that some of the city centers are doing amazing work trying to figure out how to keep people alive. And we're seeing this get reported regularly. And I'd love to see what happens when we either go yeah, back in not, the data not, and look. Not just hospitals, but I think very, like I, I, I refer mm-hmm. 
return to the nursing homes. I think, you know, there's right. a huge variation in, in nursing home kind of situation and care as well. And that could be a, a big explanatory variable. Yeah, what and, we're seeing and what really, what's really interesting to me is what's our end game? I had a, a, a very difficult conversation, not because it was hard to make, as a friend of mine with a doctor who really doesn't see see a vaccine, uh, or he sees the virus mutating, and 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 because this is going to become like an annual occurrence, um, and so how are we going to get around this? And one of them is treatments. We will become much better at treating it. There will be a vaccine, but it'll be like a vaccine for the flu, which is mm -hmm. yeah. eh, kind of six, sort of success, successful. Not 100%, not, but maybe 50%. That's enough, right? Um, but, we, but herd immunity won't, won't last for a while, but it won't last till next year when it comes back slightly mutated. And here we are again. And so I feel like these, these initiatives, which are treatments, not cures or mm -hmm. vaccines, are going to be important going forward. I, I, there's no question there will be, you guys all know how many papers have been written on rankings of hospitals and that this is the yeah. statistical problem because you have small sample sizes mm -hmm. in some places and larger in others. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, in a good sense, we will see a bunch of healthcare outcomes research papers come out of this about not just death rates, but quality of hospitals and, you know, treating certain illnesses versus others. I think it's, uh, if I were a biostatistician that published in healthcare outcomes research journals, I'd be saying, thank you for, I mean, unfortunate for, for personally, but this is another 20 years of data for me for my research career. So, Adi, I, I believe this, another thing that caught your eye, I heard over the last week was this educational policy in Montreal, is it? And yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, it, was an, it, was a, it was a stunning accident. What, the big issue with us here in the United States, and this is heterogeneous, is what are we doing about returning to some sort of opening up, they call it, and we're seeing an amazing amount of heterogeneity. And the, what occurs to me is that our decision about what we should be doing or not doing is is a mess. And part of that is because we don't trust our governments and we don't, and there's, and there's a lot of diversity and almost anger and animosity splitting the country. And so one side doesn't trust the media, the other side doesn't trust the government and, and, and you get, you get, you get problems. So when my cousin who lives in Montreal told me that they were opening up their schools, I thought immediately, well, they must have, they must have really got a handle on this. This is, this is, they've done a great job. It's Canada, et cetera, et cetera. And I went, I looked and I, and I saw Montreal, I'm like, it looks just like Pennsylvania. In fact, I thought Pennsylvania really did a same, interesting, the same size, more or less the same size city, more or less the same size cases. Pennsylvania is not trending up. They're doing really Philadelphia, well. Philadelphia, I think you're I mean, sorry, I'm, yeah. I'm really specific yeah. to Philadelphia, yes. And so how is it that Montreal is opening up and we are not, and maybe I'm not going to take a position on whether what's right or wrong. What I understood there was that the people in Canada generally trust their government and they trust what they're telling them about what they should do and how to follow. And they are in a consensus agreement about whether, whether they disagree or not, they're going to do it. Um, and it, it struck me as that the way we interpret the data here and the way the people in Canada are inter interpreting the, the outcomes and the way we interpret it here is colored by, by terribly by where we are in the political spectrum. And I feel like it's our role as, as scientists and statisticians to try to, to disentangle that and say, well, this is what we know. I, I, I would sort of say as a person who lived there, I, yeah. I, would, I would need to know more about like what the kind of local media reaction and kind of local social network reaction is to this particular plan. Certainly my friends that still live in Montreal think it's a terrible idea to open that early. Oh, okay, well, good to be, know. You know. So like, you know, I, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, at least among my friends set, set, which is already a lot of selection bias, like, you know, kind of a 
not not dissimilar kind of distrust of the government's policies up there. Let me just frame it, Adi, in a statistical framework, which we all know well. And it's the second part of what I'm going to say that people don't trust in the U.S. If we could treat this as a test and learn framework, then I think I'd be positive potentially on this. Let's, on a small scale level, let's test what would happen if schools were opened in places where it's reasonable. But let's make sure we learn from it. I'm just not convinced yeah. that given our, we can't even agree on what the data are. We, we don't agree that the government will measure it properly or that it'll be tested properly. But if we could test and learn, it would be just from a societal and statistical perspective, that's what we should be doing at this point. I just don't believe there'll be any learning going on. Well, I mean, the heterogeneity in America is going to give us a ton of natural experiments, right? It's just, they're not, I think you're arguing that they're not controlled enough and, and kind of designed well enough where we could actually even learn something from. I think we can learn we will learn a lot from this summer of experimentation across the country, but I agree it's not going to be done in kind of a well-designed, controlled sort of way. I will say, uh, speaking to my cousin more, more thoroughly about it, is they're not just opening up schools like, come on in, everybody. <laughs> it's not working that way. They're doing it in shifts. The kids have to be at distance. Um, the, in fact, my, my, my cousin isn't even sending her kids right away. Why? Because they feel that the learning environment, because of all the, the changes, is not going to be so terrific, and they're able to stay home. And, and one of the reasons why you do open up schools on the early side, in fact, all, much of Europe is starting to open up their schools, is just the only way the parents can get back to work, is if their kids are, are taken care of during the day. You may be unknowingly describing, and I swear I do not know this, you may uh, unknowingly be describing what the University of Pennsylvania plan is for the fall. We will see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, fellas. Uh, great, great discussion. Enjoy hearing what caught your eye around the world of COVID-19 over the last week as we continue to navigate these uncharted waters. That has been the first quarter. Of- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition coming to you from Zoom. We are broadcasting or rather recording from a few different locations around the country. The last time we'll be coming from Central Texas. We're also in Center City in the main line of Philadelphia. Shane Jensen, Eric Cradlow, Audie Weiner, friends, colleagues, co-hosts here with me, Cade Massey. Delighted to be rolling into the second half hour of the show. Going to shift our attention to a, a more purely sports orientation. Happily, the world is slowly bringing some sports online. Notably, last week, there were some live sports. UFC, they may have been the first at least high-profile sport to hit hit the hit hit us again they did it without an audience you guys take this in what what is your impression UFC kind of it, it is eerie to kind of watch something without an audience like that the silence well, is almost deafening that's what I wanted to hear more about you know we, mm-hmm. watching you know watching Saturday Night Live for example without the audience it's just kind of a little bit dead what what was your viewing experience without oh, the without the crowd I enjoyed it more let me say why because again I liked hearing what the various coaches were saying. Um, I liked hearing the kind of contact. You could hear it better. And actually, if you've seen a lot of UFC events, when they darken the stands outside of the octagon, you can't really see that many people anyway. And actually, you could sort of still see people. I'm not saying, I mean, there were still coaches there. There were, you know, maybe there was 200 people in a 40,000-seat arena. But you could kind of see people around the periphery of the ring. So I was 
more, I thought, as just a fan perspective, I thought there was going to be a bigger impact to me of no fans as opposed to, let's say, an NFL game where if they show wide shots of the stadium and there's no one in it, that to me is going to be a very different feeling than what I felt was UFC where it was blackened around the octagon mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, to, what, you, what sports you think would be most affected as a viewer, let's say as a viewer, not as an athlete, since we don't know these pro athlete experiences, as a viewer, what sports do you think would be most affected by not having a crowd? Let me give you an example that I, that I remember from sometime in the last year, someone had a good a highlight of a college football run with the crowd noise kind of amped up a little bit. And what happens on some of these long runs is, of course, as they get a little bit of yardage, the crowd, if it's a home crowd, is, is if the home crowd has the offense, is getting louder. But then when, as soon as they realize that this might go for 80 yards or for 70 yards, there's this second bump. And it's this terrifically exciting thing. And, and of course, college football, there's like 100,000 people in the, in the stands. And so that bump is really cool. And I could imagine that that is an important element of the college football experience. Yeah, I, th- um, I think I think football will have the most impact. Like it'll have the most. Like crowd noise is such a huge part of actually, like you know, like home field advantage. Like it, you know, it does actually have bearing on the game in terms of making it difficult for an offense, you know, a, a, a visiting offense to call out plays and stuff like that. Now, what really interests me is the impact on football on the actual strategy and play. You talked about the the, the fighting matches where they can hear their coaches, but in in football, the quarterback can yell it at their receivers and get their attention. That's, in, that's in, inconceivable con- right now in, in, in football. Mm-hmm. They actually communicate to people by talking to them. That's just not happening in, in, in professional football. But I, I do remember my you know, elementary and high school days playing you know, touch and tackle football. And talking was the way you got people's attention. I, ca- I can't imagine that happening at the professional level without changing the game dramatically. Unfortunately, well, they do a fair bit of that right now, Adi. And they, they get, it's one of the reasons that um, crowd noise starts affecting the game because at peak times in the wrong end of the field, or if you if you if you have the wrong if you have the ball and you're the opposing team, the visiting team, it can matter because they actually do a fair bit of talking. I mean, but they do that within the huddle, I thought. Or, or, no, no, or, they, or at the line of scrimmage. At the line of scrimmage. Quarterbacks. Right, but even even, out, even but during action, they're yelling. We just typically don't catch it because there's so much else going on. Now, unfortunately. I mean, this, the center is making line calls to the other linemen, for mm-hmm. example. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of communication that's going on. I was going to say, unfortunately, we all agree football would be affected. Um, I just read an article literally five minutes before we came on the air from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who said that of all the sports, football is probably the one where you have to have people um, tested because he said it's not sweat. People think sweat, you cannot get the virus if someone sweats on you with it. However, he's saying because of the physical impact, if I hit Shane and I have the virus, the virus will actually jump off of my body, land on your body. And then when you wipe your mouth, your eyes, etc., that's how. So he's saying of all the sports, he sees football as the one that needs the most testing of any sport by far. But the, the, the players are already wearing face masks, right? So that's, that should no, be. No, but protected. I'm saying when they go to the sideline, that unfortunately the, the virus doesn't just go away when that's you. That's maybe not the most, you know, well designed. I think, I think Fauci might be underestimating the physicality of basketball and, uh, and European football. Hockey too, but, you know. Those, those guys are covered up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, European football, so the Bundesliga is back this Saturday, I believe. I think they have something like nine games left in their regular season, and they've been planning on this for a long time, and they're going to do it without 
uh, without fans, of course, but uh, the, the initial plan was to make something like 200 people you know, safe to test and keep safe 200 people per game. And I just saw a note that the, some, something like the British government has said the Premier League can come back. So soccer seems to be on the way back. We're going to find out. This can be, you know, that's the closest thing. How do, do, do ESPN at least like like viewing uh, these games in America is a relatively easy thing. Or do you well, NBC special? Sports, NBC yeah. Sports already carries the English Premier Leagues all pretty much all day Saturday and Sunday from like nine a.m. to two p.m. And let me just say, by the way, um, they've got more ratings. The English Premier League gets higher ratings than I understand. It's not as many, but than Major League Baseball, than hockey. Um, than tennis and golf. So actually, the English Premier League is actually very well watched here in the United States. I don't think I don't think I, I don't think I knew that, Adi. Well, I was just going to say this seems to be soccer's uh, uh, potential inroad into the American market. If all the other major sports are essentially closed and the English Premier League is, is being is being broadcast on ESPN, you're not just going to get your expatriates and whatnots and the, and the soccer nuts who just to co- congregate on those few games and, right. and elevate. But you'll have a regular soccer viewership that people are just going to start to get in the habit of watching because it's the only thing available. So maybe the the other sports need to carefully uh, think about their 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 path to return. Otherwise, they might find themselves down a viewer audience. So that's the the Premier League. They're supposed to be coming on around June 1 or so. And as Eric says, they usually have a nice slate on Saturdays, which is kind of a pre-sports watching in the U.S. That's a real advantage over, say, the South Korean baseball that ESPN has been showing in the middle of the night, in the middle of the week. But we do have – I don't know what their Bundesliga plans are. I don't think that's been an ESPN property. They've been in, like, uh, the Italian leagues, for example. That's correct. So it'd be interesting if someone picks them up for the next for the next. Oh, Fox Sports. Betty D says Fox Sports. So, all right, here we go. The Bundesliga, one of the top four or five leagues in the world. We've got some soccer coming up this Saturday. What else, fellas, from around the world of sports? Well, I read an article just recently about, um, you know, we just had the NFL draft. And I just read an article about, again, that continues to reinforce how uncertain the NFL draft is and the outcomes. Um, And this is what I saw. This has to do with the 2017 NFL draft. Mm -hmm. So these are players entering their fourth year. And just so people know, I think everybody knows this, but when you're drafted, let's say in the first round, the team has, it's a four-year contract and then the team has an option for the fifth year. And of course, somebody, a lot of people would argue you'd rather be the first pick of the second round than the last pick of the first round, because when you're the first pick of the second round, the team doesn't get that team option for the fifth year, and you can become a free agent sooner. There was an article that just looked at the top five players drafted in the 2017. This is the top five, the top five players drafted, and only one of those five did the team actually exercise the fifth year option? And that so we get hard. kind of almost like an, through these exercisings of this option or not, we get kind of a binary evaluation on whether or not the, the, the team thought it made a mistake with that pick. Yeah, because the or, team, or that they want, still want that player, I guess. Yeah, the fifth year option is always going to be cheaper than if the person went out to the free agent market. Mm-hmm. And so, you it's know, really when, whether they still want that player or not. Correct. Miles Garrett, uh, the Browns answered yes. Mitch Trubisky, the Bears answered probably no. <laughs> um, you know, another one in there was Leonard Fournette. We already know the Jaguars have been looking to trade him. And so it's just amazing at how, um, you know, the, the draft, even at the upper, upper end of the draft, some of these players do not turn out to be that successful. I think it's it's a profound observation, really. I mean, it's it's just it's just five, it's just one year, 
but we need these anecdotes to kind of drive home the uncertainty of the draft. And that's a great anecdote. You know, we talk a lot about cherry picking data. So let's take that critique to this though. If you went five more, you guys pay more attention to these things that I do, but I can tell you that the hit rate is better in the next five than it is the first five. So the next five picks, Jamal Adams, Jets, safety, Mike Williams, Chargers wide receiver, Christian McCaffrey, Panthers running back, John Ross, Bengals wide receiver. Oh, and Patrick Mahomes, number 10. Well, let me ask you a question, Katie. Is that an argument? I mean, it's an argument for maybe these first five when I saw it on ESPN where cherry pick, but if six through 10 turn out to be better than one to five, on, on the one hand, it says X, but on the other hand, it says Y. Well, no, and I mean, certainly, certainly focusing on the quarterback specifically, the most important position, the rank ordering of how quarterbacks are drafted in that first round, you would certainly change that ordering in retrospect. Right. Let, let right. me put it to you With guys. Trubisky going before both Mahomes and uh, Watson. Let me put it to you, to the, this guy. This is 2017 you're describing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Right. Would you hold this? I mean, is this just an oddity for 2017 where one through five is outdone by six through 10? Or would you actually forecast that for the 2019, 2020? I mean, do you think this is a real thing or this is just an anomaly? No, 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 no. It's, well, there's two things going on. Mean, means decline. And so you'd always predict that the top five would be better than the next five. Yeah. However, and this is the point we're illustrating just anecdotally here, variance is so high. And yeah. so okay. the chance the chance of um, the second five topping the first five is seriously non-trivial. Right. And, uh, and, and people don't draft like that. That's the real problem is that yeah. people don't, they forget that. They forget, they think <laughs> these top fives are just complete shoe-ins. <laughs> yep, it's an old lesson, the, never seems to get learned. <laughs> on, the, on the NFL, uh, more news, of course, then we're turning these non-field events into major events. The, the schedule was released this past week. And, you know, we know from early, as soon as the season's over, we know who the who the opponents are going to be, but we don't know who's home and away. We don't know the series, the sequence and all that stuff. Did anything, I think there's some interesting nuances in here, given the uncertainty of whether they're going to play the schedule, but did anything before we get to that, anything else jump out to you about the schedule in my opinion, intentionally? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I did see one stat that I thought was an interesting reminder of just how, you know, big and kind of, you know, geographically asymmetric this country is, but like to just look at the kind of the travel times, for like a team, I think Seattle actually has the, the highest travel time of any team. And it's something like four times what Baltimore has, which is the lowest travel time of any of the teams. So, so just sort of seeing that, that, that kind of like in, in necessary kind of heterogeneity in, 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 in uh, travel times, I thought was really interesting. Well, and just let's, how let's, equal schedules can be as well, basically. Right, and that's despite we, – we, we did this maybe in our first year or two. We had someone – come on as a guest who's involved and we need to go back and do that again because it is one of the most sophisticated optimization problems in industry trying to do this thing and so they're trying to balance so many different factors but of course there's always something that they can't balance and there's always something that's going to get and there's additional factors that they kind of built into this one here like i think i read that like um they made sure that all the week two um, teams like had their like in, anybody playing in the in the week two had the same bye week so that that is a week that could be canceled if for example they need relatively easily canceled if that they they need a kind of later start to the season right there were a couple of cool wrinkles like that so they're clearly baking in contingencies where mm-hmm. they can and they don't know what's going to happen but just trying to build some flexibility the biggest one people talked about was the Super Bowl can be bumped back. And so if they have to cancel like the first four weeks, the plan would be to begin with week five and then add weeks one to four on the back end and just bump everything out. Shane, you mentioned uh, 
little Easter egg that the week two opponents all share the same buys so they could be rescheduled. Also, there's something like the week three and four, there are no divisional games in weeks three and mm-hmm. four yeah. or something like that because you'd rather not lose. If you have to lose some weeks, just flat out lose them, you don't want them to be divisional because those have such big implications for the standings. You know, one of the other things I saw, which was interesting, let me ask you a question. Obviously, everybody knows that's been listening to Moneyball. I'm a Buccaneers fan. We have almost a semi-Buccaneers fan here now in Shane. Oh, yeah. No, full on, full on. My All right, let, me, let me get to my analytics point here. Um, they've just upgraded or downgraded, depending on how you want to view it. Um, the Buccaneers, they now believe, have a much harder schedule than even though they knew their opponents. And let me say why. Because everybody wants to see Tom Brady, the Buccaneers now lead the NFL in the number of games they have to play on short rest. Now, that's not good in general, and not their opponents. So they're playing five games this year on not full rest, and four of those games, their opponents are on full rest or on extended rest. So This was, I thought, an interesting analysis about, on the one hand, it's great to have Tom Brady and it's great to be on TV and build that Buccaneers brand. But, you know, I don't know how big an effect size this is. Does this downgrade you a quarter of a win, a half a win, one win? But, you know, you got some, like, for example, the Bucs are playing Thursday night. Well, the team before them has a bye that week before. So they have four days versus 11 days. They could have balanced that and they didn't. Yeah. So my 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 rule of thumb, which is really rough, but you know, you know, in in Massey Peabody, we end up estimating the effects of these different travel issues and off days. And my rule of thumb is that a buy is worth half of home field, and that a short week or a long week is worth half of a buy. So it's like 0. 0.7, 0. 0.15, and, and three, or or something like that. Now that's really rough. That gives you a sense of the implications of having in wins in 0.15 wins yeah in expected wins so if if no 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 no, not not expected wins in in points in expected points so home field being three yeah and a buy being worth one and a half and then a long week or a short week being worth 0.7 oh 0.75 okay so it's not it yeah so if you change if you added that and change the win probability it's not that big an effect size. So maybe I'm just, I just thought it was an interesting article that looked at it. But now that I see the magnitude that you guys have estimated, it's probably not as huge a deal as I'm making it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing that I, when looking at the schedules always kind of reminds me is we, th- we try and think of this, we, we think of the schedule as some kind of parody inducing thing, right? Because there is those couple of flex games uh, a year where the top, you know, like a team that does really well the year before is going to have a diff- more difficult opponent. But those really don't do that enough, essentially, to kind of make up for the kind of schedule imbalance that comes from, you know, the, uh, the uh, other intra-conference and inter-conference divisions that you happen to be lined up with. That's so, for pretty, example, that, that in, the intra-division is pretty rich coming from a Patriots fan. Well, who's feasted? Who's feasted? Sorry, sorry. In, 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 I meant intra-conference and inter-conference. So, for okay. example, the Patriots. I am going to complain as a Patriots fan this year. The Patriots have, I think, <laughs> this year, you... the toughest schedule in football this year because their their kind of division they get matched up with within the AFC is the AFC West, which That's is the toughest loaded, and they're matched up against the NFC West. In, in the NFC, which has like, you know, San Francisco, like there's every good, every team in that division is good. So they've got, they've, they've got the hardest schedule in football. You know, who's the easiest schedule, one of the easiest schedule in football, the Baltimore Ravens, who, you know, were, 
you know, almost in the Super Bowl this year. Yeah, ch- chance, man. I mean, if only your team got a caught a good break every now and then. Well, I'm not sure. saying maybe that the maybe Patriots if like their sixth round draft pick. <laughs> Maybe if their sixth-round draft pick worked out well, you know. Wouldn't it be great if Stedham was actually decent? Everybody would be like, oh, no, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't do yeah, this. I've, I've always had a hard time taking schedule, strength of schedule issues seriously in the NFL because they pale so much compared to college. In college, they're yeah. worth, like, games. I mean, games of difference. Oh, yeah, no, I, and the magnitude of that, 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 that strength of schedule is much less than the NFL. The, the place where it matters the most and it affects – perception people get the wrong ideas the most is that at the halfway point there are major differences in what oh, yeah. teams have done and then they end up being mostly leveled out by the end at oh least yeah by the halfway the point of last season we thought the patriots were going to be world beaters yet again oh, just to give you an example just to give you an example the um buccaneers predictions all the pundits have the buccaneers roughly at seven and one roughly at uh, predicted six and two seven and one at the halfway point but Three and five or four and four in the second half of the season, just based on the strength of the schedule. Right, you know what? Right. That sounds a little bit more lopsided than I could imagine. I mean, I could see, you said seven and one, I could see f- maybe f- five and a half and three, you know, you move this forecast, five and a half to two and a half. Um, it, it seems a little, little bit wild. Is it, I mean, a, considering it, it, it's a preseason and the, and the football, pro football teams, particularly it, preseason, tend to it, be a little bit more compact than we like to think they are. I mean, I think I look at this data. You, you can get that disparity pretty naturally in an NFL season just kind of by, by the ordering of things and opponents. In this in season, forecast, though, I, I mean, in a reality, of course, but in a forecast, Cade, what do you think? Five, seven and one with a forecast, even with a schedule imbalance? That seems well, just, I think Shane, doesn't I think surpass Shane, my sniff test. I, I, guess, nice I assume Eric's just kind of taking whatever team is favored in each game and just kind of like, you know, calling that, right? Like, exactly. I mean, oh, I see. No, then, then, you know, right. Sense. It's not necessarily right, right. that they're right. actually being forecasted at seven. Minutes. Okay. Yeah. That's mean, that means if you, if you play to chalk, I guess they call it. Yeah, right. that's right. All right. Eric, and you should be an expert on this. What do you think we're going to see from Winston in New Orleans? And here's one of the things that I like about it. We, we, player performance is always confounded with his environment is his team the the scheme the coaches and it's therefore very helpful to see people in different environments we're going to see that with brady unfortunately it's here at the end the end of his career and so it's confounded with age in an unhelpful way but with winston if he's still got good quarterback play in front of him this he's he could do it in some in some new environment what do you think and and this is one of the best quarterback environments you could possibly go to so what are you expecting from winston having watched him for all these years well the first thing is we may not get to see him at all um, so it, unless Drew Brees gets nicked up or injured, um, Cam Newton's, I mean, uh, Jameis Winston's not playing. Uh, uh, Drew Brees would be happy to take every single snap, except for the ones they love to throw to Taysom Hill to mix it up a little bit. So I don't know that Winston's going to get a lot of playing time unless of injury. Um, but I would say the following, um, Winston has a strong arm. He's not accurate enough. Um, he Definitely can make plays, um, but he can also make a lot of mistakes. I think what you'll see is you'll see if he gets to play, I think you'll see him do enough similar to a Teddy Bridgewater where some team will decide he's the quarterback of the future. So I'm predicting that he will be a starting quarterback again in the NFL, but in the next season, assuming he gets to play, let's call it the equivalent of two or three games worth just because either they're resting Breeze or Breeze gets nicked up. I think I think Jameis Winston has a lot. I've seen him make some amazing throws that I think no more than five or six quarterbacks in the NFL can make. And I've seen 50 throws that he makes, and I'm like, holy moly, why did he make that throw? 
Yeah, what happened to Teddy Bridgewater there is basically his ideal outcome, right? That he gets an opportunity to kind of show himself uh, for through, yeah. through a little bit of injury uh, of, uh, to Drew Brees and, and, and then is a starter the next season, basically. Do we think a guy like that can be um, changed and improved as a quarterback just from having a year around Sean Payton and Drew Brees? I mean, is that enough to actually change the trajectory of a guy's career? Well, I don't think you're all of a sudden going to change his arm strength, nor do you need to. I don't think that's it. I think his ability to read the field, maybe. Um, his ability to realize that some plays are better, the ball just thrown away. Can that be taught to somebody? Yeah, I do. I think you can teach that to somebody. I think they've had four years of trying to teach it to him already. I, 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 I got it. And Bruce Arians thought he would be the one that would, you know, the, mm-hmm. the guy who's basically coached every great quarterback. Yeah. Yes. I think Jameis Winston will show some improvement and we as statisticians will have to decide whether it's true improvement or just mean reversion. Like who could possibly throw 30 picks again? Who could be allowed to throw 30 picks again? (laughs) Yeah. They won't allow him to. It's a very different kind of learning. It's a very different kind of learning to uh, learn from a peer and a senior peer and a legendary peer than it is from a coach to mm-hmm. learn while sitting yeah. on the, in the sideline, watching the guy, to prepare with the guy, to debrief with the guy, to sit on the on the bench with the guy and look at the plays. With, that's just a very different kind of learning than to take it in from the offensive coordinator, from the head coach, while being the one who has to walk out on the field. It should, it's about as rich and good as learning environment as one could hope for. So if a guy can be changed at his age, this is a good situation. For and, and certainly we have seen sort of examples like that, like Alex Smith in Kansas City apparently was a real great mentor in addition to having Andy Reid there too, Patrick Mahomes during his first right. year. Right, right. All right, guys. Well, that has been another quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Wharton Moneyball Virtual Edition coming to you from Central Texas, Center City, Philadelphia, and the main line in Philadelphia. Ken Massick, the hosting with the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Fellas, we've had um, kind of a national watch party of the Last Dance documentary on the, on the Bulls' last championship season, which of course covers far more than just the last championship season. It's fun. If you're not watching it while it's going on, Twitter kind of comes alive commenting on this thing. They're, they're always fun little bits the next day. I'm curious. I have really dropped off. I got a lot of making up to do, but I'm curious how you guys have been reacting. Have you picked up the last episodes? They were just last night, episode seven and eight, I think. Yep. I, I did watch it. Um, there was two major things that kind of struck me from last night and they interface between basketball and his other sport, which he tried to play was baseball. One was that when he took the essentially most of the 94 and part of the 95 season off, um, it's amazing how he talked about and his trainer talked about the fact that his body, his kind of baseball muscles were very different than his uh, basketball muscles. And so he had to build different parts of his body up. And that obviously made a difference going to baseball. And then of course, when he came back from baseball to basketball, he said, while he was in shape, he was totally out of basketball shape. So that was one thing that really caught my eye. The second was that, and I posted this in our set of notes, um, Michael Jordan's statistics in uh, when he was with the Birmingham Barons, which is double A White Sox, his final statistics where he had a 202 batting average, a 289 on base, a 266 slugging, and therefore a 556 OPS. 
but every interview you heard during the last dance, including from the owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, to scouts, etc., were convinced, convinced that if he had stayed with baseball and had 1,500 at-bats, he would have been in the major leagues. And now the, the, the rationale they give for this was, and this is what I'd love to hear your thoughts about, was for someone who basically hadn't picked up a baseball bat between age 17 and 31 to hit 200, let's make sure, double-A balls, not, it's not like Adi and I playing out in the field. They were <laughs> saying the fact that he could hit 200 meant that's ridiculously impressive after not having picked up a bat for 14 years. So those two things caught my eye from a basketball-baseball perspective. Just, just for calibration, what did, like, Tim Tebow hit in, in double-A? Yes. Yeah. So Tebow has been uh, bouncing around a bit. I think yep. he's in, he's moving to the middle of the 250-ish range. He's, he's certainly a little bit more impressive at this point, but he's put a lot of at-bats in mm-hmm. than, uh, than Michael Jordan, and most of his career has been at, at lower level. What Michael Jordan did, at, I mean, he's one of the world's greatest athletes. You can't forget that. And he also played through 17. That's not, um, it's not like he never picked up the, the, the baseball game before. I'm, my last time seriously playing any baseball was about 18 years old. Um, you got a lot, of game, a lot of ball in in those 10 years. Um, and, so, and, and, of course, he he's, uh, has the ability to learn how to learn, which is something that we can't underestimate its value. He didn't end up hitting 200 in, in AA immediately, but he, he was able to transfer his skills from, and from other sports to another and to learn how to get out there. But don't underestimate the difficulty it is to hit 200. You know what, Adi, Adi your, your point was also funny. Um, they also highlighted, you should watch this, Adi, because you would love this. I, I will. Um, he had a 13-game hitting streak to start his double-A career. And then, as, as the announcers put it, um, he never saw a breaking ball for another two and a half, another fastball for another two and a half months. He only <laughs> exactly. saw breaking yeah. balls. That, by the way, is the killer. I mean, yeah. we yeah. all know that. Hitting the off-speed stuff. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, these days, every team has a model of what, how they project their minor league players. Not just their, everybody's mm-hmm. minor league players. So these projection models, it would be interesting. I mean, they, they didn't have them then. It'd be very interesting to see what the quants would say, given his stats. It might break the model because yeah. it's so far outside the support. You just don't have evidence for people at that age dropping in and doing it in the first year. But you might. it'd be fun to have some of the best quants make a run at what the, how they would have projected um, Michael Jordan's stats. Tell me something about him like physically. It's so interesting when you, you think about the big guys in the league right now, like your, your boy, uh, your, your boy Judge, Judge and the Yankees. And then you think he's so big, but Jordan would actually be taller than him, right? I mean, what, what's no. the height of Judge? No, versus Judge is no. about 6'8". Oh, gosh. Okay. 6'8". Eight. Eight. And guys like Sabathia are about 6'8", 6'9". Sabathia 6'8", 6'9"? No, I stood next to that guy, the big guy. Um, yes. but, but even – but see, what is he, 6'6"? Six, six? Is that how tall? Maybe less Jordan at 6'6", six, six, yes. That's still an immensely tall baseball player. Right, yeah. Right. And, and what mean, position was Jordan? I don't even recall. They were that. playing him in the, in the outfield. He yeah. was playing right field and then some left, uh, mostly left. But again, what he pointed out was for basketball to t- just remember, he was just coming off all these years of playing against, you know, the Knicks and the Pacers and the Pistons. He said he had to build up his upper body to absorb the punishment, which was not the type of lean muscle he felt he needed for baseball. So it wasn't that he was training less hours. If anything, actually, they talked about this in the, in the, uh, in the show, that he was actually doing batting. His coaches were amazed. He would take the regular batting practice, but he would also take like five extra hours of batting practice a day. 
Well, well this is this goes to his what the baseball yeah. guys call makeup. I mean, they worry a lot That's about right. the mental mm-hmm. side of the game, and they would know they would have. I mean, he's he's the gold standard for the mental. Already side knowing of the game. how to succeed at whatever you set your mind to has got to be a tremendous advantage, basically. As you I also know, the, the, ever. the words that I hear used are growth mindset, right? So the idea that he can see himself being something else and figuring out how to make himself be that other thing and knowing what, how to actually implement those, those intermediate steps to get there. One of the things that I think just to be concrete about it, people don't realize this, but in baseball, your core is the primary, primary power generator. Right. So that middle part of your body, your hips, your, your, your thighs, your, your butt, that's why, you know, this is what generates the power for, a ba- for both a baseball, for a batter to swing the ball hard, swing the bat hard, and for a pitcher to generate a lot of force in, uh, in a, in a, in a, th- in a thrown ball. So, Adi, we don't have a lot of new baseball data to play with, but you guys have been doing some primary research. I understand you have a student who's about to go on the job market. What, what kind of research has he just done? Give us some well, of your latest. Uh, sure. So one of the things that our students do is they, do, they try to do research, and baseball has such great data that you can always find something. So the question, he actually posed it, um, the, the problem, which is how should we properly be evaluating stolen bases? And can we actually build a strategy chart which really properly – assesses whether you should go for a stolen base or not. And the, the typical way that we evaluate a stolen base in most of the projection systems, the valuation systems, is almost a two-to-one ratio, of about 0.4, a little more than that, for a success, for a, for a caught stealing. It costs you that in runs, and you get about a 0.2 in, in, for every stolen base, which suggests, for example, that if, a, if someone stole 35, 30, 35 bases and got caught stealing five times, that brings almost an entire win to the, to the team in value, if you figure it out that way. Maybe not quite that, maybe about half a win. But that's a lot, a real lot. But what, what, well, hold what, on. Give, give, yeah. Adi, give, give, me, give us a little context for those of us who mm-hmm. don't have the numbers. That suggests you need to be successful like two-thirds of the time. Two-thirds, that's the good benchmark that people, people use, about a two-thirds of the time. And how, what, what, what is the distribution of, given sufficient sample size, what is the distribution of um, success among guys who steal bases? Well, interestingly enough, it hovers around 0.7, 0.75, because those who can't do it never do, and that's essentially what happens. And even those who can do it pick their spots. And they, those who can do it pick their spots, but you don't see people doing it. So, okay, so, so one of the best base dealers on a rate basis is someone like Mike Trout. Duh. <laughs> Which, or someone like Chase Utley, who from the old days, who was incredible. He'd, they'd steal about you know, 19 out of 20. They weren't the world's greatest base stealers, but they knew to pick their spots. So what, what we're doing is actually trying to take that to a higher level. So it turns out, for example, that the value gained and lost, it always seems to approximate about a two to one, two to one loss to gain. But that can be leveraged enormously. When you run with no outs, the loss when you're caught can be almost two thirds of a run. When you run with two outs, the loss, the loss when, you're, when you're caught is only about a fifth of a run, and the, and the gain is always about half the this loss. This is because the expected, going the expected into the settings, runs. the expected yeah. runs is much higher at the start of an in inning. The world, than, in the world of analytics, has your mm-hmm. student checked to see, forget outcomes for a second, are people more optimal in their choice of when to run? Well, it turns out that they're not, and this is what we're starting to do some research in. And then there's, a, there's two other factors that also make a huge difference that are very intuitive to anyone who watches baseball, which is how good the batter is. If you're running with, with uh, on first, you're running to, to steal second with nobody out, and you have a terrific batter and a terrific team, that actually changes the probabilities enormously. So what we've done is build a model that actually takes that into account. So let's just show you how extreme it can be. If you're, if you're on first base with nobody outs, nobody out and a good batter 
on a good team is up, you need to feel have a probability of success that that is closer to 0.8, mm-hmm. which is enormous. And if you're on a if you're with a weak batter and a weak team, it can go down closer to about 0.6. So that's a fairly big swing. And, and here's another factor that, that came up very quite interestingly. Ba- good base dealers shouldn't be at the top of the order because of this. You don't want them there, which is traditionally where baseball, b- baseball stealer, good baseball, base, uh, right. stolen base stores were there. And you don't want them there because you don't want to take the bat out of the good hitters that follow in the, or- in the order. Guess where you want them? Six and seven in the lineup. Why? Hmm. Because the batters at the bottom are the least likely to hit a home run, do something good. You want to get on second so, so their piddly little single can drive them in. But you also, Adi, I assume you take into account the change in batting average depending on where the runner is on the bases. Because to do the counterfactual you just made, you would need to know that. Like, for example, if somebody steals second, then first base is quote-unquote open and you can pitch around the guy. So any simulator or counterfactual. And they're also there. They're, take that into account. Once they're on second, they're, they're able to communicate signs to the modern. The truth is that in too. The truth is, Eric, is we don't do that because that is uh, that starts to – impinge on data quality and data quantity and you'd start to worry about estimating them. Although you could sort of estimate them as on a, on a macro level. And I know we could try to fill, figure out a model for doing that. So essentially the model, what we now we essentially have a, a scorecard, which says, given the batter, given the team, given the base out situation, what quality base runner do you have to have to not to steal the base? And it really ranges enormously. Now we're doing that on the expected run basis, which you could argue is not necessarily the most sensible thing because you probably should be doing all base stealing calculations based on win probability added rather than expected value. But if you, because ultimately that's the point of a game is to win it, not to score as much runs as possible, but to win the game. And so win probability added is probably the better strategy. The problem with win probability added is that it, that depends on the inning, the, the, the size of the distance between in, in terms of differential and runs, and it just makes a much, much more complicated modeling framework. So we avoided that. So Adi, as a, just to kind of simplify this, is it fair to think about this as a, as a variance-inducing tactic, and therefore you generally want to deploy it when you're relatively disadvantaged, and you want to not deploy it when you're relatively advantaged? Is that kind of a, is that fair uh, to say? Well, actually, one not quite because it's 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 basically something you do when you want to play for one run rather than many. I think that's the best way to think about it. Oh, okay. because if you're so think about the Earl Weaver. This is the, he was the manager of the Orioles back in the '80s. He was the one who pioneered what he used to call the three-run home run, and his he was very forward-thinking. His idea was don't run because what you really want to do is get men on base and have your power hitter knock them in with a homer. That's how you catch up. Uh, if, so you don't, it actually doesn't induce variance. It actually decreases it, but it does increase the probability of getting a single run. So okay. when you're tied or up by one or down by one, a stolen base can be extremely valuable because it plays away those high run outcomes in exchange for a, for a, a single run, which you might need in a certain context. And, and I mean, I, and I think that induces a weird selection bias into the analysis because, you know, you've got kind of quote unquote, a lot of base running, which is, completely optional like the game situation really doesn't dictate that it's necessary and only people who are going to steal uh, who are very effective stealers are going to take advantage of those sort of like you know kind of voluntary completely voluntary base running situation but you might have somebody who's not such a good base runner pressed into service in a situation where where it actually is necessary like you've you're you're need to catch up because of the the probability runner available etc 
I think, Adi, the point you just raised is one that maybe you're underplaying, but I think is a really important one. In, in many, there aren't a lot of situations in this world where, in some sense, you're trading expected runs potentially for win probability here. Because most mm-hmm. people would say, well, of course, you got to score as many as you can. Well, no, you just need to score one more than the other team. And so I think this is a fascinating uh, topic, and I think we should have a show at some point in the future where we try to think about other situations in sports where, I mean, you could think about going for two in football. You could think about it might not being the right expected thing, but it maximizes the win probability. I think it's a really important kind of trade-off. I, that sounds right. And, and also this is a, people have philosophical debates about which of those metrics is better and are they really different? And so to highlight this as a place where it might actually be different is helpful. But of course, Adi said they weren't able to do it using win probability, even though that is theoretically where this would have an advantage. Yeah. So the thing is though, I have to say, I feel like I learned something about baseball. And, and I think ultimately when you do a statistical analysis, if you can't come out with learning something new about about the game you really you really are still still out there searching and the thing that I kind of learned was that the cause and the effect we I used to typically thought of the teams that are play small ball that's a bad choice um, because a tip stolen bases just aren't a good generally not a good idea but when you have a crappy team and are unable to get men on base and hit them then actually it turns it turns out to be a much better idea so for no the Yankees ball does dominate no ball <laughs> yes it's right right <laughs> so for the Yankees to run it makes no sense but for the Detroit Tigers and and, and teams at the bottom there whoever they are every year they seem to shuffle um and the Marlins, I guess, and, the, and, and who else is down at the bottom. These teams, it's a, it's a quick way to generate a little bit more offense um, and, and it, by taking it, strategies like this. But to, to some extent, if, if you're trading up, if you're trading off upside for a certainty of a little bit of a gain here, you wouldn't want to be doing that against teams that are explosive. So it, I, I don't know to what extent that's in the analysis, but if I'm playing the Tigers versus playing the Yankees, the likelihood of, you know, whatever small advantage might not be worth the trade if it's well, against a team that is, is a, as explosive as the Yankees. But I'm actually talking about just an expected value. So the Tigers aren't going to drive pen, people, many runs in. They need to get them into scoring position. And it matters much more for them to do so than it does for the Yankees, who can drive people in from anywhere because they hit home runs. Well, okay. So um, the, uh, the, one of these things that surprised me, Adi, is that you learned this about baseball. And my yeah. question is whether you think other teams – would learn this given, I mean, these guys, some of these teams have 20 plus people working on analytics. There, there are groups of analysts in MLB who are essentially R and D units. They're doing stuff that might not matter for three or four years. What is your sense of how well understood this is? It feels squarely in the world of analytics and in sabermetrics. I would argue and that teams that have the staffs are fully aware of exactly what to do. And they have systems in place to make sure their coaches know. And one of the things that's impossible, at least according to the rules, is that the coaches are not allowed to have such a card to tell them what to do in any given situation. They're supposed to do it right? based on, yeah, they're, they're not allowed to, they can't, sorry, they can't have a card. They have to make one. They're not allowed to, to communicate with a back, with a back uh, analytic staff back somewhere else who will tell them. So creating such a card or, or some system, I bet is something that a team like the Astros, the Yankees, the teams that have the staffs, maybe the A's, have almost certainly created these things. But I would guess that, and, and baseball is, a, is surprisingly, surprisingly, even though every team has an analytics staff that has at least three or four or five, which for football is, is large, that's not enough. Um, I, would, I would guess that there's have and have nots on this score as well. 
Okay. I'd, I'd just like to hear your thought, because um, to me, obviously, coming up with a, a, a complicated or statistical solution is important. Where did the question come from? Because a lot of listeners were probably sitting there thinking, why did the student or you, why do you ever think about studying this problem? And, a, mm-hmm. and let me put it a different way. Let's say you're a team with 20, as Cade mentioned, 20 data scientists. You got 50 different things and you want the a big, a big effect size ones. Why did you think this would have an 80, 60 effect size? Or why did you bother even looking at it? Well, I'm going to actually, uh, the, the student's name is Matthew Popowitz. Um, he worked in the MLB office for a couple of uh, internships over the summer. So perhaps th- those are the, the, he came from just watching a lot of baseball, talking to people. As a longtime watcher, viewer, fan, player of baseball, I would say that there is, it seemed to me something that was, that was understudied. I mean, it seemed to be a lot of arbitrariness about when people are running or when people aren't running. I would have put it in the in the category of something probably not to study right away, only because I thought effect size would be small, pretty small. And I'm still unconvinced that the effect size is big enough to actually change things of a magnitude that might even matter. Uh, but I, in meaning that, can we really squeeze a win out of this? My potential guess is probably no. Um, but we're at that point in baseball where the second and third order effects mm-hmm. are being studied. Guys, uh, we're down to just the last couple of minutes. I'm curious what developments we've seen in baseball. I've heard some talk of a shorter season. Or how serious is this? Is it warming up? Oh yeah, and I mean, I think they're right now. They're doing a. They're, they're basically negotiating with the players about how this will all be financed, essentially. So I think I think they're they're moving towards a pretty. I think they've got a pretty serious plan to start in early July and and have uh, maybe a half as many games as you know. I've heard eighty or eighty two games uh, season. But half, will be, half, of course, half the games doesn't mean half the revenue. And so that, of course, is going to be the big mm-hmm. sticking point. And it's not even just number yeah. of people in the seats. But, you know, it could be, as this was our initial discussion, if it's less exciting to watch baseball on television, it's already a little bit painful for, uh, for many people that weren't raised in baseball, <laughs> you're going to possibly make it even more painful. Uh, it, it may happen. So there, there, there could be ancillary effects besides just the mm-hmm. number of people in the stands. But is that where we are, where the biggest hurdles are negotiation and revenue hurdles as opposed to health? Really? No, I mean, I think some of those hurdles, some of the negotiations with players is not just on the financial side of things, but also on the safety side of things. I think players are probably going to want assurances that they can't, will, will be kept safe through this whole process. I have to I have to counter by saying that so much of our procedures in the health wise are there to prevent epidemic spread and, and that. The concern, that's the big concern, that it doesn't spread widely. But on the individual player level, this can't be a concern. Um, the, but one thing we can learn from Korea, since we're watching Korean baseball, mm-hmm. and that would be a big advantage for Major League Baseball, they play fast. That's a great thing. Maybe we can encourage in the interest of, of uh, getting many games in quickly that they speed up the baseball game. Apparently, there's a rule in Korea, you only have 12 seconds to throw the ball. That's about oh. half of what a Major League Baseball averages. Wow. All right. Well, you know, back to Eric's comment about Dr. Fauci saying he was especially concerned about football. If You know, this is one of those sports. It's not quite as contact-free as golf, but it's getting up there. (laughs) (laughs) It sure is. And I mean, from a person who used to watch Montreal Expos games all the time in person, not having people in the stands is not as disconcerting in baseball. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. happens all the time. (laughs) All right, guys, that has been another quarter here at Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. 
Welcome back. We've got a very special guest. This one of the first interviews we've done in our virtual versions of Wharton Moneyball. We have Will McClay. Will is Vice President of Player Personnel with the Dallas Cowboys. Just rolling off of a highly lauded 2020 draft, and we're delighted to have Wharton Moneyball. Well, it's great to be on. Time with us. Um, I'm, you know, Knew you, knew you a few years ago when you were scouting, and it's been a delight to watch you rise through the ranks there at the Cowboys. And you guys have been getting a lot of credit these last few years for some high-profile personnel moves. We'd love to hear how the draft went for you. It was fun to watch the excitement around the team when you got that C.D. Lamb pick at number 17, surprisingly. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like, how much of a surprise it was for you? Uh, how, how did you make the decision to pull the trigger on that? Um, really, we went down through it, and, you know, so much of these drafts, there's, you know, each team builds the board for their value. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, we have players slotted. We typically have anywhere from 16 to 22 guys in our first round, uh, and then they're sequenced through that. So we went through it. We were picking at 17, and going through the exercises, we really didn't think that CD would be there um, just from a for us to pick but we went through it and evaluated him and you know knew that he was you know in the top 10 of all the players on our board and um, so then the draft was coming it was coming down and so we're, we're starting to look at it and the way things were falling um, there was an opportunity we got to around 10 uh, we thought that there was going to be that opportunity that yeah somebody's going to take him or call or trade up before uh, and none of that happened, and then um, it ended up being there. We went into the draft talking about uh, with the goal of improving the defense, um, and there were a couple of defensive players there that were graded a, a little bit below CD, but they were first-round players, but they weren't as high as him. And uh, at the end of the day, it was the age-old thing. When you go on a draft, especially NFL draft, it's always about there's the argument best player available, position of need. Uh, we went with best player available in that instance. Mm-hmm. How how do you feel as a as a personnel guy about the value of putting two such quality receivers on the field at one time? What does that What do you How do you feel that does for you strategically? How important is it to be able to do that? Well, realistically, we think it's it, it's three because you had yeah, Michael right. Gallup in that, yeah. and then um, you know we have Blake Jarwin, who's a pass catching tight end that that. Uh, you know, brings fee, uh, speed down the middle of the field and you have Zeke. And so you have all those things. And I think, you know, when you give the defense variables and you have weapons that gives them variables that they have to contend with and you can use those in different ways. So I, I think it'll be very interesting as to how we do that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this isn't the first uh, recent draft uh, that you've been kind of lauded for um, kind of, you know, the performance of the Cowboys in. Do you think that there's something special about how the Cowboys think about drafting strategy versus other teams? Well, I think we're a unique situation because um, our owner is our general manager. And while he gets uh, much of the blame, but he should also get much of the credit because the organizationally the, the, where the, the head goes, the body follows. Um, and what he does is he trusts us uh, in the process of um, getting him the information and being passionate about it and doing the research and, what I tell the scouts is our big deal is we are the lawyers. And what I tell them, we're presenting the case to the guy that's going to make a decision. Uh, and so um, I think that whole uh, kind of thing works out. And the other thing is um, 
that we 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 operate under the 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 auspices of hey this is our board it's not it's not the scouts against the coaches the coaches against the scouts it's trying to bring that together um and, and I think we've done a, a really good job of doing that. And it all starts with the work of the scouts digging it out. And then also the way that we, uh, you know, if we're presenting the case, you got, it's, it's all the presentation. You got to present it the right way. Uh, you got to have all your facts. Um, you know, and I say we need to present all the information and let the, let the judge decide it. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought I was going to give you a hard time because I was having a hard time remembering any, uh, Texas players that Cowboys have drafted. And then I blanked on Connor Williams, but I I looked at 31 years of Jerry Jones drafts and I was going to bust you for how few Longhorns are three in 31 years. He's drafted three, but it it turns out that there've only been in the same stretch. There've only been like 109 Longhorns drafted. So it's really kind of what you'd expect. Three, three times 32 will give you 96. You know, the teams that are, have the most under the Jerry Jones ownership, the teams with the most, the colleges with the most draft picks. I want to say Boise's up there because as I've been here, we got a bunch of up there. It's high. We we got a bunch of them. Um, You know, LSU. LSU's high. LSU's high. But the top one is not surprising if you think about who was influencing the draft in those early years. Miami of Florida. Oh yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. I mean, Jimmy must have had a lot of influence. I'm guessing those were some early players. And Ohio, yeah, especially in that time. Yeah, Ohio State. Third is the one that, that I was kind of going at, which is Oklahoma. You guys have a predilection for Sooners. I can't argue with CeeDee Lamb, man. I'm just glad he's not on a team that's going to be – it's a team that I can pull for for a change as opposed to CeeDee Lamb's been ruining my life for a few years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, he has. And, I, you know, and I forgot you were a Longhorn, but then you bring it back, and I won't hold it against you. <laughs> you were playing for Rice in the 80s. That I mean, that was a bad – that was a bad stretch. You were playing Southwest Conference football back then. Oh, yeah. We, we were terrible. My senior year, that's why I met with the Arena football, enjoying football game. My senior year, I was a captain, and we were 0-11. That's not a great thing, great <laughs> feeling to have. You said that thing, and they said, I found the, my joy of football back. After that's, that's, I, I wouldn't, that's a sad thing to say after having played college football, but I, it makes sense given that that was the era that you played it in. Hey, we got our ass whooped by a lot of people, you know. And a funny story is you, Texas, and, and, and it's it's funny that it, it kind of ends up this way, but I was um, in high school when I was being recruited by Rice. And it's funny, Mike Nolan, who's now our defensive coordinator, actually recruited me to Rice. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, and um, I remember I was at a track meet, and Coach Nolan was there. It was a track meet at Rice. And Coach Nolan was there, and I cannot remember the Texas guy, the, the, the coach's name, who was recruiting me. But when I told him I had made my decision that night that I was going to Rice, and at the track meet, Nolan was there, the Texas guy was there, somebody else. And then I told – I can remember this vividly. I told the Texas coach that I was going to go to Rice. And he said to me, and this was a whole recruiting thing, he goes, well, you're going to be a loser the rest of your life. And he walked away from me. And so I've always had this disdain for most Texas people. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> of that elitist little bit. But, but I, I've always remembered that. And, you know, and then, like, now there's uh, a couple of people around our office and in different parts. I don't think we have any Longhorns. I had a guy that coached there. But, um, oh, our, our Tom Robinson, our analytics guy, is from UT. So I kind of right? give it I give it to him every now and then because we used to have – we used to get our ass kicked at Rice – but the band, who was the most entertaining thing when we were there, right. yeah. used to 
when we were getting our ass whooped, they would break out in this chant, that's all right, that's okay, you're going to work for us someday. <laughs> and so that's what I tell Tom all the time, as the mob only could. That's yeah. outstanding. And that's a good backstory on your, your hate for Texas, and I understand that. That's some real snark there. You talk about it being our board. It's a collective board. Who else is in that collection? You guys are, people are increasingly talking about you as being a little bit more analytics forward. I think of you as having always been analytics open at the very least, personally. When you think about the collective, our board, who's giving you input other than the scouts? Are well, we got, you- we got the scouts, the coaches. The coaches also evaluate guys. They have a certain number that they evaluate, and then they also, uh, we, we, we call it POA. So even the guys, because of their time frame at this time, they can't grade everybody. We try and give them a select group to grade and try and, you know, kind of smatter it amongst the top three rounds and then the bottom four rounds and kind of mix all that up. Um, but then we also have, there's also a medical grade that goes into it. Uh, our analytics guy, Tom Robinson, does a great job with uh, providing information from a, a, a cowboy kind of spark score, uh, using some outside information, using all of the data and stuff that we've used and collected from forever to kind of build models to say, okay, who's this guy most like um, is from a production and a measurement and a speed standpoint. So all of those things kind of go into the mix of how we describe them. We don't just rely on the analytics, but the analytics is a part of it because it kind of points out the outliers or maybe some things that we haven't seen. Mm -hmm. You've been working with folks in analytics for well over 10 years now, at least. I'm curious, we're always interested in talking with, with, with decision makers like yourself who, who draw on analytics and who've seen it for a long time. What do you see that works well? What do you see that doesn't work as well? What advice do you have for those in the analytics community to make their work more impactful? What can um, we do better? I think the biggest thing that I've noticed, it, it's, it's um, football people uh, especially are extremely hard-headed. Um, we, we, you know, the tape doesn't lie and we've been doing yeah. this forever and, our, yeah. and the computers are our own brains and these are all the, excuses and things that I've looked at and used, but also if you want to do a great job, you use all the information. Now it's not solely, I do believe that there is a uh, unique aspect of what we do from a standpoint of our computers, our brains are trained to look at certain things, but then there's also biases in everything that we do. So if you can look at the numbers to pull away your biases, I think that's a way to help. And then we Mm-hmm. Um, shoot, we, we look at numbers, what, instead of words, and, and it started, I, I've got this report form that, you know, we, we grade 30, 40 things on each player. And it's really noted by data points where a guy gives a number and that number associates with a color. And I can look at the numbers and kind of give a synopsis of what the guy thinks without reading a summary. Wow. And so yeah. then we, um, look at, and then what I do every year is give the coaches the form that we evaluate and it's a blank form. And I say of these 40, 50 things that we grade, which 10 are most important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll do that because all the guys that put the numbers on it and there's an average and the average or, or, or a, a score of all the players, it kind of notes a color and then we can talk about it as to what the value of the guy. So not only we're we using the data from, measurements from production but our own data as we've done this process probably the last five or six years 
to yeah. kind of say, okay, how many of those 40 things does a great player have in common with this or, you know, what we're looking for at that position? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that actually uh, kind of uh, to follow up on that, my kind of question was now that you've been kind of doing this and collecting this kind of more quantitative data over the last few years, do you ever kind of take the opportunity to kind of go back and evaluate what, what, what are the kind of more informative measures that you actually are taking out of those you know, list of 30 or 40? Do you yeah, I mean, we're also, we'll go ahead. I'm you sorry. Also use it for like kind of retroactively. Can you kind of, I'm sure every scouts are human too, and everyone has probably their own little biases and this could be a great kind of feedback loop for correcting some of their biases as well. Yeah, the more information we get, the more we're trying to build models and look at ways to say, if nothing else, if somebody goes, what made Tom Brady? Okay, and if we would have had data on Tom Brady from back then using the same way that we do now, we could say that subjectively with the scores that we've given, this guy is closest to Tom Brady on how we graded him. And now the the, the unique thing about uh, using an analytics approach and applying numbers to different you know, aspects and data points to players is everybody, our scale goes from say one to eight. And with one to eight, there's a definition that, you know, it starts with one is elite and we go backwards, you know, the lowest score is the best score. So we go from one to seven or eight, and then there's an adjective for each line. And so my view of elite may be excellent to somebody else. So over the course of time, especially our analytics guy, Tom Robinson, he said, you know, you can take and look at the numbers and aggregate it or whatever he does, some magical way to say, you know, this guy is a lower or higher higher grade or whatever. And that insight uh, gives me something to stand on when I'm looking at a report and we're talking about him and those sort of things. So I think applying it, because uh, it is subjective, but trying to apply some science to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talked about getting input from the coaching staff as well. And this is something that kind of boggles my mind when you're with the personnel department over the course of the year and you see how much you guys put into evaluating these players. And then you realize there at the end, you have to also incorporate the input from the coaches. It's a heck of a process. You have to kind of ride, ride wrangle. What was it like with the new coaching staff this year? And, I think it was, di- it was different because – um, you know, I was reading a book a long time ago, The Power of Habit. And the one thing that stuck with me is like, we form habits to keep our brain from working. So for 10 years, we had the same staff. And so we kind of, you know, time to go make the donuts kind of deal. At this time of year, we did this and we knew how he was going to react to this and this. And they kind of understood the system. Um, well, the new coaches came in, we had to hear what they wanted. And then we also had to explain what we did. And so in explaining what our process was it made us look at the any inefficiencies or any ways that were different or how do we relate what we do to what this guy wants. And um, I think it was huge. And I think that also with 10 years of Coach Garrett, there was – I've said this and no discredit to Coach Garrett, but so many football coaches are like this. And when I coached, I was the same way. It's you, – you, you, when you got a pen and a piece of paper – you can create all kind of stuff to stop the, you know, the person. And so then you try and you stop your opponent and then you try and find pieces to fit what you schematically do. Mm-hmm. Um, McCarthy came in and he said, players over scheme. If our scheme is not advanced enough to take advantage of a good player, we need to look at our scheme. So for a personnel guy or a guy buying the groceries, you're just telling me, go get whatever and I'm going to make a hell of a dish out of it. 
So <laughs> that's fascinating. So you, you feel like there are coaches around the league, maybe even you said this is maybe the dominant way for coaches who are scheme first. And if it's hard to work a guy in, even if he's an exceptional player, that may be the consequence of having a system that it's, it's amazing to think about a coach who has that kind of flexibility, who can move around at that level. You guys don't have infinite time with these players. How, how is McCarthy able to have that kind of flexibility in a system? Well, it's interesting. We're, we're, we're going to find out about it. This is even going to be more trying because we're doing, you know, we're not on the field trying things out. It's a new staff. It's, it's a new scheme for guys that have been here before. Uh, it's a new scheme for guys that we're adding from other places, college guys, all that stuff. So um, I think that the way that they teach, um, you know, Coach McCarthy talks about, um, oh gosh, I can't remember how he, it's the, the motor skills and the fine skills and uh, those sort of things. And he talks about designing um, individual drills to address those things that are then incorporated into how you teach that within the scheme. So I, he's got a plan to, uh, apply those things and, and, and the proof will be in the pudding. I'll have to see it because I'm from the football world where, you know, you run a four, three defense. And if you run a four, three defense, you run it this way. And if you run an offense, you're because so much of what a coach does during the game time is he's got to rely on his computer. So what's he going to do? He's going to rely on the systematic way of looking at down and distance and parts of the field and what works and how the defense is going to react and all those things. Um, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a kind of a unique deal. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about being of the football world and from the football world, you played college football, you played in the XFL and coached in arena. Is that right? Or I played in arena, coached in arena, and then I went to do personnel in the XFL. All right. So long time in the football world. Um, can you talk a little bit about your your arc from that to what you're doing now? How you move from playing to player evaluation, and now you're running the player evaluation group. How have your how have, even the way you think about player evaluation? How has that changed? And the world has changed over that twenty or thirty years. Will the world's changed? So just keeping up would require that you would change them. What's it, what's it been like for you to to travel that path? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been unique because, I, you know, after college, I didn't get drafted. I, you know, we got our butts kicked at Rice and, you know, got an education and all that stuff. But then I went and I found joy in football again uh, in the Arena Football League. I didn't make it in the NFL, and so I went to the Arena Football League, and there were a bunch of guys that had been in the NFL. Like, I played in Detroit with Art Schleister. Now, Art Schleister has all of his issues from a gambling standpoint and whatnot, but he was a phenomenal player you could see the talent and all that stuff and there were guys that uh Bruce Clark was uh he was like the MVP of the USFL and you know I had so many of these guys and I was like wow I was amazed by it and then arena football was kind of different in the fact that there was eight guys on the field there was guys in motion you know the the the, it was a 50-yard field and so you started looking at space and people and how you use and so I kind of got fascinated with it that way and I've been around football my whole life so I started looking at it very early on about evaluating, like, why is this guy better than this guy? And And then I got into coaching and somewhat applied some of that. But I really, when I started coaching and I was coaching arena football, we weren't making very much money. So I added uh, director of player personnel to my title uh, when I was first started coaching because I wanted to like get more money on my check and, and, (laughs) and, and try and build a team. Uh, and so then I ventured around with the Arena League. I would go to 
NFL Europe, um, you know, when they cut players, I would get on the phone with GMs or scouts or whatever. As I was trying to find arena players, I would talk to them. And the more I talked to them, the more I got uh, enamored with the player personnel side. And uh, um, my father who passed away a, a while back, but uh, he would tell me the story that when I was seven or eight, I would say, I'm going to make it to the NFL. And if I'm not a player, I'm going to be a president. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, and, and, and I think it kind of stayed with me. And yeah. then I got done coaching in the arena league and the XFL opportunity came up to get into player personnel. Okay. Um, and so that was the first XFL. Um, and, right. But I, I, I met a lot of great people who had been uh, in the NFL scouts and, and, and high positions. And so I got trained in that, <clears throat> built a team in the XFL, and then the league folded. And I bounced around. I was looking for a job because it folded, and we thought we were going to have two years. Uh, and so I applied for some scouting jobs in the NFL. I did not want to go back to the arena league uh, because I had my taste of actually, um, you know, being able to pay my bills and pay my rent. Um, so then I interviewed a couple of places, and I went to Jacksonville, and I got hired in Jacksonville. I got an offer from Kansas City and an offer from Jacksonville. The Kansas City offer was a college scout, and it was traveling all the time. And I, you know, I wasn't really sure about that. And then I went to Jacksonville and Coach Coughlin was there and I was the assistant director of pro, was there for a year. Uh, 9-11 happened and I wanted to get back home. Uh, so I came here to coach the arena team, but I also uh, had the condition I'll come here if I can coach the arena team, but also after the arena season, if I can pro scout. So that kind of helped me stay within it. And then I've had a few various – different roles and titles here until the, the, this latest one. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you feel like a couple of personal development questions? What do you feel like you're best at in your job? Like why is it that you've been successful in your job so far? Um, I, I think I've got a pretty good innate feel for just kind of watching a player and putting him into a category of what he can do. I think I got a systematic way of looking at players. And for me, it's, from the feet up and I do that with every position. So there's a systematic way that I do it. And then um, just, um, you know, being around and listening and, and being willing to listen and willing to be wrong and learn from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what, let's flip it around. What are you, what are you working on right now yourself personally? What do you think you need to get better at over the next few years? Um, I, I think I really need to um, get better at, understanding more of the analytics part of it. I think I've got, I've scratched the surface. Uh, I think if I uh, can dig down into some of the reasonings why, or some of the, you know, find, find our own formula with the information that we have. Um, and then um, really uh, standing behind the science more than the eye and the brain when it comes to tough decisions. You know, because I'm still a football guy. We are hard-headed. I mean, and, 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 and um, you know, it's by nature. Um, so, I, you know, I think I've got to get better at that. And then communication, continuing to learn how to communicate, to listen, as well as get my point across. Mm -hmm. When you think about communication challenges, is it is it tougher with the, your staff or is it tougher with the bosses around the building? Um, it's tougher with the staff because if you think about scouting – this college scouts are independent contractors until they come in the building. So for, you know, it's, it's 
August, September, October, November, December, they're on the road. They are out for 14 days and then they go home for two and then they're out. So they're their own independent bosses. And then when they come into the building, now we've got to say, okay, this is a group think thing now. This is, you may have seen the players in your area. You might have a first round on this guy because you really believe in him, but you haven't seen the other parts of the country. So it's, it's bringing all of that in. Right, right. How many college scouts do you guys have, Will? Um, I've got 10, 12. Uh, I've got six area guys, two guys over the top, a college scouting coordinator, um, two in-house guys, and a college director. Okay, okay. So things really changed this year with things getting shut down there in the month or so before the draft. And I know that it must have thrown a wrench in all of your processes. Are, is there anything that you learned from having to do things differently that you think will change how you do things going forward? I mean, are yeah. there some silver linings in what y'all had kind of got forced to do this year? Yeah, I really think so. Cause it really made you, uh, it made us think about the process. Okay. How do we get things done? We typically have two weeks of meetings with everybody together in the same room and the, and the passion and the presentation of a guy. Sometimes that sells, more than the actual tape does. I mean, there's some guys that are great orators and they can sell you on a player. If they really like him, they have a way of, you know, maybe not mentioning some things or whatever the case may be. So, um, you know, and, and then the ability to see and talk to and communicate with more players uh, through the WebEx and, 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 and the calls like this, where you're at least talking to a player in a controlled environment. And if you, question the right right way and your approach is the right way, you can learn who those guys are. The biggest uh, things about the NFL that's different is we're giving these guys a ton of money um, and we don't really get, get a, have a minor league system for them. Uh, in other sports, there's a minor league system, so you know what you're dealing with. What we do is we go talk to people about people, and typically we go talk to people that we're most like. So you're not – you know, if a guy is um, – you know, maybe not a, a well-versed scout or an old gruffy old fart, you know, that's been around it forever. He's probably not going to go to the head coach. He's probably going to go to the trainer or the assistant guy. And that, you know, that information's coming from there. Well, you know, it's coming from all different sources. So you get the, that the, those people's feelings on the player. You put those down as to who the guy is, and you don't have a lot of opportunity to really figure out if that's who he is, you know, for yourself. Right. So – that that that's that's a hard part about this deal. The, the 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 I hadn't thought about the fact that you're actually getting a chance to interview them directly. Since, I mean, normally your scouts are going and talking to people on campuses, for example. Yeah, they go talk to them on campuses, and then we might get to see them at the All Star game, and you got thirty minutes to interview them, and then you go to the combine, and you got twelve minutes right. with you know with, thir- with 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 X number of guys, and then you have thirty visits. So. And typically the way teams work, and I think that's what, ha- what happened in the draft, is a lot of people, uh, especially those investigative reporters and all that, they tend to find out who teams bring into the building and all that other stuff. And so it's not a big secret. Well, this process was more of a big secret because, you know, our local reporters didn't know the 30 guys that we brought into the building. Right. Uh, they didn't know everybody we interviewed. Uh, and the same happened for other teams. So just like we're saying that um, C.D. Lamb fell to us, well, other people's boards and who they had talked to 
that kind of changed the environment a little bit because not everybody knew. Right. So much less, so much less intelligence out there. Super interesting. Um, Listen, you've just finished the draft, but um, what will you do with yourself now? Give us a sense of what the player personnel director does in April or in May when you've got 11 months to the next draft. Uh, We're always trying to improve our team. I, you know, I go on the, you know, do the pro stuff as well. Um, You know, now it's okay. We have our 90 man roster players are being cut because everybody drafted. Okay. Which of these players that are being cut may be better than what we have kind of reviewing our processes. uh, You know, from a draft standpoint this week, we're all going through and uh, it's let's go from training camp until the draft this past year. What were we trying to accomplish? How do we accomplish it and how can we do it better? So going through that review, so that in training camp we have a new plan and that we're all on the same page or any tweaks or adjustments that we make. And I always try and uh, come up with different ways to make us think about what we're doing. Like on the college side this year, there'll be another, um, let's see, from from 13 till now of, of everybody's grade sorted by position. This is the grade that you gave them individually. What made you – and then, you know, kind of put them in stacks so that we kind of rehearse what we're doing, see what we got wrong you know, on the college side, but always trying to tweak. I've got to, you know, with a new staff, I'm spending more time understanding, you know, what they're trying to do, you know, what they're calling things, that kind of stuff, and just kind of staying on top of it. And there'll be a supplemental draft that'll be coming up soon. And, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how the supplemental draft takes place because typically it's guys that, you know, they've exhausted every opportunity to get back in. But now um, with – some uncertainty about maybe the length of the college season or if there's a college season with all that stuff, what does that do for players and saying, well, Hey, maybe I'll just forego it and just go in the supplemental. Oh, wow. What's the feeling around there about how much football we'll see in the fall? How are you, how are you guys thinking about it? Well, we're, we're thinking that, you know, it's going to be a, a full season and that's what we're hoping. And, you know, we've got to get all this stuff under control and they're looking for ways to, uh, figure out how to do it and make sure that we do have um, sports and it's such a fabric. I mean, uh, a great illustration of that is uh, like there was like, I don't I think I've read 55 million people that watched the draft because that was the only live sport. And it's so much a part of our fabric that, you know, we got to get back to when it's safe. And I think they're making contingency plans to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, best of luck with all of it. Will, congrats again on a great draft. Uh, we do hope we do hope to see some football. All of us are hoping to see some football, but you guys have a lot of work to do between now and then. I hope it goes well for you down there in Dallas. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time, guys. Absolutely. Will McClay, Vice President of Player Personnel with the Dallas Cowboys. Really appreciate you being with us. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.